Before we start talking about Linux today, we have to talk about storage. Brent found this story about optical media making a strong comeback. Researchers at the University of Southampton are showcasing a new nano-structured glass disk that has the ability to store data for billions of years with a laser writer. So it's like optical media is back, Wes. Well, I mean, of course, Brent would be promoting optical media, right? (laughs) Not only can you store it forever, but you can put a lot on there, like 360 terabytes of data. And I mean, we all want more data all the time, right? Yeah, and not only only that, but uh, how about them temperatures, too? 1,000 degrees Celsius, that's 1,800 degrees Fahrenheit. It'll remain stable in up to 1,800 degrees Fahrenheit. That's a good archival media right now. 13.8 billion years at room temp. It's like the next evolution of microfilm, but way better. Maybe they'll be able to fit a single uh, 8K video on there. I assume they're eventually going to get to where the original Superman movie where they have the crystals that they put in and have all the data in the Fortress of Solitude. I think they're eventually going to get there. That's absolutely what these are. Isolinear chips, uh, Superman crystals. They're, they're glass data. And they show up, a pi- they are, like in the show notes, we'll have a link to a video they have in there. And they're holding it up. It's translucent. It just looks like a piece of glass where they've etched a title onto it, but they didn't need to. That's just for looks. I'd like all of Star Trek just on one of those sitting on, sitting on a shelf on the wall. I think you'd have no problem fit, fitting all of Star Trek on one of those. No. You know what? Actually, kind of ironically, in like 15 years from now, somebody could listen back to this and be like, oh, that's so quaint. It'll be like the Computer Chronicles is to us now. <laughs> no doubt. This is Linux Unplugged, episode 307 for June 25th, 2019. Hello, friends, and welcome into your weekly Linux talk show. My name is Chris. My name is Wes. Hello, Wes. Looking very dapper today, and are you ready to talk about Linux Cloud? Oh, I'm excited. Yeah, we have an episode that uh, we've been prepping for in the most real sense. You may recall we've recently reloaded our main server here at the JB Studios, and uh, we have put it to good use. Immediately. (laughs) Yeah, we will tell you about those adventures today, but before we can get that far... We got to do the one, the only introductions. Time appropriate greetings, Mumble Room. Hello. 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 Hi there. Hello. 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 And of course, Alex, Drew, and Cheese are here as well. Hello. Hello. Good day, hey. everybody. Hi there. Hi there, everyone. Well, we have a real uh, panel of uh, of uh, knowledge experts on this well, one. We're going to need them today. There's a lot going on. As you just heard from a whole bunch of Nextcloud users there, this is really going to be... Um, I don't know, I feel like the one where I finally nailed it. I am so excited to talk about this. After many years of failed attempts to move away from Dropbox to implement Nextcloud only to go back and have to eat crow right here on the air, I feel like we have finally nailed it, and I cannot wait to share our setup with you. Dropbox, uh, they finally just did it with this last update where they want to take over everything and they want to be like your online file system and ship Electron as part of the Dropbox Sync client, I thought, mm, okay, <laughs> all right. Maybe not. Let's, let's, uh, let's look somewhere else. But before we get there, let's start with some outrageously great community news today as well. A round of applause to the Raspberry Pi folks for f- tricking us all. Uh, the rumors were we wouldn't see anything this cool until like next year. And so uh, we kind of just thought, all right, well, we got what we got and uh, we'll wait. But yesterday, the Raspberry Pi 4 Model B was launched, and it's actually a pretty decent upgrade from the Pi 3, which they're saying 
This new device can now provide desktop performance comparable to an entry-level x86 PC system. Oh, that's exciting. Okay. But how does it perform as a server, right? Could we could we replace this new box we've got? Could we have just waited a little bit and got this new <laughs> Raspberry Pi? Mm, no. It it basically <laughs> while it's a huge upgrade, it's it's still a Raspberry Pi at its heart. Although there's a lot to like, right? So DDR2 RAM, that's been upgraded to DDR4. And the new Cortex A72 CPU is anywhere from double to quadruple the speed of the older A53. Plus, there's gigabit Ethernet that isn't hamstrung by that darn USB 2.0 bus that everyone's been ragging on for years. So you can actually saturate some traffic now. Yeah, genuine gigabit Ethernet is a big deal. And keep in mind, all of that is still at the starting price of $35, which is still a pretty good deal. One of the things they're doing differently now, though, is they're including different SKUs, three different SKUs, up to four gigabytes of RAM, which is the model I purchased. Did you? Uh, yeah, I mean, you did. Did yeah. you get the four gig? I got the four. I mean, well, you're going to say no to that. And it's only, I mean, what was it, like $55? Not that much more. Cheese, did you uh, pull the trigger? Uh, I haven't purchased one yet, but I plan on it. Mm. Alex, you were probably too busy on vacay to, uh, to pull the trigger. I was. I use a Pi to run my 3D printer. I have a 3B plus right now. Uh, I think a four will be in my future. I'm going to see if this uh, eight gig rumor shakes out, though. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. There is a rumor in the manual. They talk about an 8-gig model, which that might be what we see in oh boy. 2020. Drew, are you a Raspberry Pi fan? Yeah, I've got a few lying around the house, but I think they're all 1s and 2s. I didn't actually buy any 3s. Thinking about the 4, but I don't know. I mean, I, I, I don't have a project for it yet, except that it's cool. Yeah, I bought it because I'm going to try it as a desktop. I'm going to test this claim. Uh, you know, I'll go with, with reasonable expectations. I'll tell you one thing it will be really great for. Um, it has X265 hardware decoding. So we've all, we've all had H264 for years and years. Um, and now X265 offers significantly smaller files, and this thing has hardware decoding. So it will make an absolutely great media box. They're also saying potentially 4K video out. Early benchmarks, seems like some of the reviewers have had issue getting that 4K video to actually work, but jury's out, in my opinion, on that one. I think something else they did with the announcement is they had a little bit of a, is it fair to call it a publicity stunt, or would it be a proof of concept? Proof of concept, I don't know. I think it's just a fun thing to do. The launch site for the for the new model is mostly running on a cluster of 18 Raspberry Pis themselves, right? So why not self-host it with with the product you're selling? 14-handle PHP code execution, two more serve static files, and then two run our old friend, Memcached. (laughs) Of course. Um, Of course, that's all sitting behind Cloudflare. As you do. Which is caching. And also, I think the databases aren't on that cluster either. Um, but if you're serving cached content, it still worked. It's and legit. I think the way to look at it is not of you know not really proving anything. It's just saying, look, these are capable little devices. Maybe don't use them for production, but they're great for small little tasks. Yeah, I see quite a few people on Home Lab and and all that kind of thing on Reddit using three, four, five different pies to run small Kubernetes clusters. So there are definitely use cases for that kind of thing. I'm kind of feeling that the Raspberry Pi, as time goes on, is becoming sort of the universal Linux computer. 
the the Raspberry Pi 4B now kind of makes it competitive with a lot of the other boxes that are out there at a pretty competitive price point. This isn't the fastest, but Raspberry Pi is a brand. It's an ecosystem. It is a standard now. It's integrated in production equipment, and it's also in classrooms with students tinkering. And it's at an accessible price that a massive range of people can afford. And the sort of pop a disc in like a floppy disk and boot off of an operating system approach where you can flash it from a Windows or a Mac and then just pop it into a little a little Raspberry Pi is approachable. It's and, just so easy and you get such leverage for such a, a low entry fee. And it brings something that we so rarely have to the Linux desktop. And that's why I'd really love to see as the Raspberry develops when the 5 and the 6 come out. Maybe one day we'll even have a Raspberry Pi 10. Could you only imagine what that thing's going to be for $35? <laughs> I just think it's um, it's something that Linux doesn't typically have, and that is a single problem domain for the desktop. It's it's the opposite of fragmentation. It's one company, one product, and we're not locked into it. That's what's so great about it. It's available to us, and because of its brand and its ecosystem and its user base, it's becoming this common platform. It's not the, the Apple style where only one company makes all of the hardware and only their operating system runs on all of that hardware. It's like Linux is still available to everybody. I really like where the Raspberry Pi is going as a broader product. When you look at it individually with the different boards and stuff, you can argue about which one's technically superior. But when you zoom out and look at it as a platform and an ecosystem, it's creating something for Linux as it becomes powerful enough for the desktop. It's creating something we've never had, in my opinion. Very excited about it. So that's why I ordered the, what they call their desktop kit. You get the uh, Pi 4B with uh, a keyboard and mouse, and you get that micro HDMI adapter. Oh, I wish they hadn't done micro HDMI. That's the one thing I'm not really a big fan of. And they've added two micro HDMI outs. I yeah. Would, I would have loved some kind of a SATA interface instead of a second HDMI port, but... Maybe that's just me. Hmm. You know, it's gigabit Ethernet. I, there's a lot of ways I can get storage onto that onto that Pi now. I think one of the original issues uh, too is that with the original CPU, you were tied down to USB 2.0 throughput, so that's why you could never really get gigabit speeds out of it. And now that it's upgraded, you know, with USB 3.0, obviously, yeah, you can get that speed out of it, no problem. And I mean, there's there are tests that have been run out there that actually show that they're able to get their full gigabit speed out of it. Are you happy with this product? You follow these types of boxes, or I guess boards, pretty closely. Are you happy with this release? Uh, yeah, I mean, I own several of these. Uh, I own Raspberry Pis, Orange Pis, Nano Pis, you name single board computer. I probably have <laughs> one of them from one company or the other. Um, I think it's a I think it's a great step for the Raspberry Pi Foundation. This is obviously a response to the popular RK, the Rockchip 3399 uh, that's in uh, some of the other boards out there and set-top boxes and stuff. Uh, it seems to stack up pretty well. I will say, though, that that, that uh, cluster that they set up, it just the, the photo that they tweeted out of that just drove me crazy because of the cable management and the... <laughs> Don't look, man. Don't, don't look. Yeah, just don't look. It's, it's a nightmare. <laughs> uh, but no, I mean, I think this, this is going to be a really good board. Um, and it's going to be something, like you said, I mean, Raspberry, Raspberry Pi already has an ecosystem built around it. There's so many companies that produce Raspberry Pi hats um, that are continued to do that. Um, and, and I think that this is just going to be a continually growing um, project from them um, where they, 
I think they focus more, kind of take that Debian approach and focus more on reliable, um, tried and true hardware before they just step off into the next thing. You know, like you have some of these other single board computer manufacturers, um, Orange Pod and to to name one, um, that just iterate so quickly on these boards and they're all over the place. They're, they've saturated the market with these different boards and stuff. Some of them are good. Some of them aren't. Um, but it just kind of dilutes the whole thing. So it's really nice to see Raspberry Pi just chugging away, doing what it does, coming out with what's sure to be, a, you know, a great board once it gets out on the scene and everybody starts using it. So I'm mm-hmm. really looking forward to, to seeing what they do. Man, I can't even imagine a, a Raspberry Pi 10. What what that's gonna, what that's gonna entail? I know. You know, I, I couple of use cases that I haven't like super seriously considered the Raspberry Pi three or you know previous Raspberry Pis for. Number one now is to me this seems like a clear contender for a Cody box. You know, you got you got real performance on this thing now, real Ethernet, real HDMI out. It just just seems like a clear contender. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's that's something I'm gonna have to try. And then also, you and I were just talking about this a couple of days ago. We, we, we kind of need like a computer that is low noise, low heat, doesn't have to be super powerful. We just need to show graphs and, and, and different inputs and uh, different meters and, and just readouts of different data that we have. And uh, a Raspberry Pi that uh, can run two monitors. That would be perfect. That could, that could be exactly what we need. And... It could it could take the job of a louder, more power hungry x eighty six PC easily. That's kind of cool. You know, I just thought of another use case too. Is considering that these are fanless, this would not be a bad choice for something to run Reaper on in a little mini recording booth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's got to be tried. I think yep. right. Why yep. not? They do have an ARM version. They do, and also our mixer makes the uh, mixer's GUI software for Linux ARM as well. Ooh. Yeah, so we could that's why I said we could get meters right off the mixer and on, on a Raspberry Pi. It's pretty great. Uh, there's also a link in the show notes to CNX Software, which got one of these units and uh, did a series of benchmarks on it. I, I don't really know what to take from this. A uh, couple of temperature benchmarks. Remember, there's ambient, there's other things you have to consider. But at idle, it ran at 62 Celsius. Um, and then when the benchmarks were being downloaded and loaded, you know, accessing disk and network, 64 Celsius. And then when John the Ripper was uh, ripping, 73 Celsius. And uh, he appears to have observed some CPU um, throttling as temperatures have gone up. Um, he kind of describes uh, he kind of describes it as a particular type of peak performance, bursting performance, I guess. Yeah, it's gonna it'll operate perfectly fine. You don't need extra cooling. It's designed for sprint performance, right? You're going to get a few extra workloads done here and there, but you're not loading it all the time. If you are keeping the CPUs ramped up, you'll probably want some extra cooling. Yeah. Yeah. Otherwise, passive cooling does seem to be um, sufficient. And uh, he also did test that uh, gigabit Ethernet and was getting uh, pretty reasonable transfer speeds, uh, you know, between 95 megabytes a second, 93 megabytes a second on the send and receive, which is perfectly, mm-hmm. perfectly good. Um, and did run into some 4K video playback issues, but again, early days on that. So I'm going to wait and see on, on that one. I'm tempted to pick one up, print a 3D print a little housing for a, a USB hard drive, and then just um, send it to my parents' house, plug it into the network, and then just use BitTorrent Sync. 
That's a very yeah. end point. Oh, yeah. Great little management, mm-hmm. whatever. Having something in someone's house. Perfect. I could, I could definitely see it being a little sync endpoint or a little Nextcloud endpoint potentially as well. Well, we have to move on because, of course, there was some dramatic breaking news. Everybody's, everybody uh, freak out. Um, Ubuntu is dropping i386 architecture support. Oh, no. Yep. If you are on a uh, Intel series processor, no longer will there be 32 support. Steam is pulling out all support for Ubuntu, and Valve developers are upset, and Wine developers are... Wa- Wait, what's that? It's the Linux gaming apocalypse? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I was just going off an article that was posted by PC Gamer just 20 hours ago. Uh-huh. Hold on, Wes. Just one second. I'm getting... I'm getting... I'm, I, I gotta get... I'm sorry. I gotta get pulled aside. Apparently, there's an update. The cone of silence. Okay, what's going on? So, you're, I'm getting word here that uh, all of this is a complete overreaction. Oh, yeah. There's some updates. Oh. We should get into them. Oh, okay. All right. All right. Well, maybe we'll just cut all that out, okay? All right. Let's go. <clears throat> yeah. So, uh, this uh, week, um, there was a big upset when uh, it appeared that Canonical would be removing support for uh, i386 packages in Ubuntu 19.10 and subsequently uh, 20.04 LTS. So kind of the series of events is this is something that's been discussed for quite a while. Um, We covered the timeline on LAN a little bit, but from what I can kind of see, it seems like you really kind of see the conversation kick off around May of 2018. And we've, I mean, we've seen other distributions make similar moves already. Yeah, Yeah, in fact, OpenMandriva just announced they're uh, dropping. Now, don't arm... ARM architecture, you're, you got ARMs keeping 32-bit. That's not going away. This is just this is just for the Intel uh, x86 side of uh, the camp, and so uh, you see you see conversations, and the, the message really seems to be from from the Ubuntu developers is our sense is kind of I'm paraphrasing for them. Our sense is that these packages are not well maintained. They don't really have a lot of eyes on them. There is security issues that are they are known to be vulnerable to like Spectre and Meltdown that they're not receiving mitigations for amongst other issues and uh, we kind of think to protect the overall platform move forward we should remove these packages because they're likely a security risk although we can't prove it they likely are. That's Canonical didn't want to come out and scare everyone but in their own way, that's essentially the message they were relaying is, hey, nobody's really looking at these. I mean, we're, we're shipping them, and we're putting the work to package them and, and make sure they're built acro- against your current distro, and we're making sure they're in the repo, and that's all good, but uh, they, might not be very, they might not be very well maintained. And uh, that conversation sort of went off from the mailing list onto the web and then uh, onto podcasts. We've talked about it a little bit. And uh, then this last Tuesday, just after the show wrapped up, Ubuntu desktop uh, lead developer or manager, uh, Will Cook, went onto their uh, community Discord and or discourse and said, um, here's the plan. We're going to start officially deprecating support for i386. A couple of days go by. Nobody really says much except for a few other people from Canonical chime in on the conversation. And then on Friday, a staffer from Valve posts on Twitter that the removal of i386 support would be untenable and that Steam would have to look at dropping support for Ubuntu moving forward in 19, uh, 1910. That was the moment that really set the internet on fire because all of a sudden it looked like Steam was dropping support. So then you immediately had half a dozen articles go live saying that uh, Valve was officially dropping support for Ubuntu. And... Um, Within a short time after that, a change.org petition was created to uh, force Canonical to keep 32-bit support in the distribution. 
And uh, there was sort of a back and forth about uh, if this was good or not for the longevity of the Linux desktop. And by Sunday, Canonical had decided they would walk it back a bit. And then on Monday morning, they uh, made an official announcement that they would be keeping the 32-bit i386 packages for Ubuntu. They they wrote, thanks to a huge amount of feedback this weekend. (laughs) That's how they start the blog post um, on their Canonical blog. And then later on, they say community discussions can sometimes take unexpected turns. Ain't that true. And then they later write, we also look forward to working with Wine, Ubuntu Studio, and gaming communities to use container technologies to address the ultimate end of 32-bit libraries. And that's important right there. Yeah. So I want to continue this conversation, but I thought maybe what we should do is not a lot of people are, are really discussing what it takes to run a 32-bit x86 program on a 64-bit x86 Linux system. Um, So suppose that you have a modern 64-bit x86 Linux system and that you want to run an old 32-bit program on it. I do. Maybe a game or something like that. It's got Mm -hmm. some libraries. So what does it require uh, from an overall system, both from like the kernel and uh, the rest of the environment, to actually run a 32-bit application on a 64-bit box. All right. Well, at a minimum, that requires your you know, 64-bit kernel to support programs running in 32-bit mode and making 32-bit kernel calls. Okay. So there's some kernel stuff. Oh, yeah, of course. Right. And supporting those calls is not always easy because there's all kinds of different structures involved. And those structures have to be translated back and forth between the native 64-bit version and the emulated 32-bit version. Wow, imagine so like when you're on Windows, when you're playing a Windows Proton game that's 32-bit on Linux, there's so many layers of translation happening there. Oh, yes. And, you know, a lot of those, they're not always pretty. I'm sure there's many in the kernel community who wish that, you know, it would just be, it'd be kind of simpler, it'd be cleaner not to do this. Yeah. There's more complications around ioctals and, you know, dealing with pseudo-terminals and other sorts of devices like that. And more complications with the VDSO, hmm. where you have to, you have stuff that gets mapped into just about every program running, even for statically linked programs that don't necessarily make use of nice sorts of optimizations for dynamically linked the programs. system doesn't know, so it's just got to load it. Yes. So every and app gets it, yeah. That means the kernel has to carry around another 32-bit ELF image, which has to be generated somewhere. And that's where, that's where a lot of this stuff gets the most complicated, I think, yeah. right? Because you have to get all of these programs. You have to make all of these shared libraries. You have to generate and compile all this stuff. And right. that's never going to be simple. Well, and it gets even significantly more complicated because if if it's a little simpler if the 32-bit application, like you were saying, is statically linked. However, if it's a dynamically linked 32-bit application, then there needs to be 32-bit libraries all the way down, and they're all loading all of this extra baggage and crap all the way down, including like if they if you have an application that needs to do a, a name lookup, there needs to be a 32-bit name lookup library. Oh yeah, all those NSS modules you have in nsswitch.conf. Yeah, you gotta you gotta take care of those. There's lots of complications with glibc. Maybe there's some other libraries you have, stuff like curses or X11 or the standard library for say C. It, there's just lots of stuff lurking all over, and a lot of it might need a 32-bit compiler or tool chain. Now, in theory, it's often possible that you can do cross-compilation, but right. it's just a lot of infrastructure that actually has to be supported to make all of this work at the level that you expect on a modern Linux Well, and if you try to file a bug against a 32-bit application that was built on a 64-bit system, they'll tell you to go screw yourself. Uh, you ha- you're supposed to, for if it's going to work in production, you build a 32-bit app on a 32-bit system. I mean, it is possible, but in practice, there's problems. On top of that, many build systems just don't really even support it, so 
there's that as well. <laughs> so forgive my perhaps ignorant question. Why do Valve care so much about the 32-bit thing? Is, is Steam a 32-bit app or something? Keep in mind, this was an employee at Valve. This wasn't an official Valve announcement about a Valve partner. This was an employee venting on Twitter. But um, it's the games. It's the games. The games need the 32-bit libraries because a lot of the games are 32-bit. And everybody that has played you know, a handful of Steam games has definitely run into this. I mean, I know I have 32-bit libraries on my system right now just for Steam games. Um, Canonical's inside data that they get from the surveys that people opt into in 1804 shows that less than 3% are getting the 32-bit version of the ISO. Mm. That's the ISO. It doesn't tell you how many of them are 64-bit systems running 32-bit libraries, but that tells you how many people are going directly to 32-bit. It tells you, really, as a whole, it's, it affects your entire system to run a single oh, 32-bit application. Yeah. We'll have a great breakdown linked in the show notes if you want to dive into just everything that has to go on. There's a real technical cost. There's a genuine technical cost. And sure, we all have memory to burn, and we all have processor to burn these days, but I don't know. I like my system to be as efficient as possible. Right. As always, supporting this stuff, it's, it's a cost-benefit analysis. And so, if people are using it and it's useful to have, then you should do it, but it's never free. Somebody tell me if I'm wrong, but let's just pretend like we live in a world where internet outrage didn't, didn't drive immediate reaction by cor- corporations, and Canonical really stuck to their guns on this. And they said, no, 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 no. You don't understand. We ha- we're going to maintain the libraries in 1804. There'll be ways to get those libraries on 1910. It's not a big deal. The libraries aren't changing that much. We'll be backporting security fixes. You just get it that way. What if they had done that? Because to me, it seems like, because that was the original proposal, to me, I see a few ways... The problem could have been solved. We could have had our cake and eat it too. You could keep 1910 64-bit pure and then wrap all of this stuff up in a snap. One Steam snap that has all the 32-bit libraries you need. Or how about the flat pack that literally already exists? There is a flat pack already that you can install on a pure 64-bit system and you can play 32-bit games. It exists today. Of course it does. What about a PPA? How about a PPA that just installs the 1804 libraries? Could have done that. Valve could update the Steam runtime to just simply include the now missing 32-bit libraries. They have chosen certain libraries to include already, but then opted to allow the OS vendor to supply the rest that they consider to be less important. Perhaps Valve could reconsider. It seems like the community does think they're important. Perhaps they could just package them up like they're already packaging a lot of libraries. So what I, what I don't quite understand, and I'm, I'm genuinely seeking feedback here, is... What was the risk? It seemed like there was always going to be a pretty solid solution. In fact, some that are already working today. So I don't, I don't quite understand what the upset was about, why we needed a change.org petition, why we harassed, cannot, not we, just saying generally the people in the community, harassed canonical employees over the weekend about this. PC Gamer just posted an article this morning, even after Canonical clarified, Ugh. just trying to get clicks and drive controversy. You had people that were uh, trying to get others to switch distributions. Come to Manjaro, it'll solve your problems. I mean, that was all over the place. And I, I don't understand why we, as a fairly technical community, are susceptible to this, because it seems like, and I guess maybe I'm just an idealist, but it seems like the immediate conversation should be, all right, well, how do we solve this with technology? How do we get together as a community and collaboratively solve this problem? Right, or at least maybe the beginnings of, hey, this could cause problems for us. Uh, what what are avenues? Do you have, you know, how how can we migrate our software? Because usually, and I, I know this is true for Canonical, it, they, people care about 
others running their software and they want to help, right? You could be a part of this in a positive way and engage to and have help from Canonical to find the best solution. It's harder to do when you start in such an aggressive tone. Well, what I don't understand is that people are so up in arms over this now where this is something that's been talked about for quite a while now. Yeah, I think it was that developer at Valve's tweet that sort of, that kicked off the headlines. Why are we taking faith in this guy's statement when it's not a direct statement from Valve? I mean, I've gone to Valve's blog. They have, they've stated nothing about any of this. I guess to be fair, there was also a conversation going on on the Wine development mailing list too about what, you know, some serious, but yeah, I, again, I come back to, there were ways, there always was going to be ways to solve this. Um, and at some point we do need to move forward just for, for funsies. Was it you that went and dug up the original announcement about transitioning to 64 bit? Yeah. Way back in the day over at Linux.com. And, um, it's quaint because it's written in a way where like they clearly don't think we'll be the 32 bit supports like a transitional technology. Like these will hang around for a while yeah. and then be gone. Yeah. <laughs> like, no, here we are in 2019. We're yeah, almost like 15 years later. Yeah. Uh, it, it, you got it. You do kind of wonder when is it time to go? And I know the elephant in the room here is that Catalina from Mac, Mac OS Catalina drops in the fall and it's 64 bit only. And Apple's like, just, you know, shut up and make it work. Deal with it. Uh, and they don't even have the same technology. You know, they don't have snaps, flat packs, Docker, images like they don't have cheroot environments like we have a lot of ways to solve this problem um i think what kind of gets me i'm going to just take this moment to remind everybody currently a very happy fedora user on my daily driver (laughs) and just moved my server over to fedora however you have to acknowledge that canonical takes it in the face on this stuff all the time they move something forward like this that maybe is a little bit earlier than anybody else or because of the size of their user base it's genuinely the first time it matters they take the brunt of the reaction. And then in a year when Fedora announces they're going 64-bit only, crickets. The day Open Mandriva announces it, crickets. Canonical's reputation constantly takes it as they move this stuff forward. And people love to trot out old wounds like Mir and Upstart. That was, it even came up on the YouTube comments. Pulsatio. <laughs> yeah, and it's at what point do you go... You have to weigh the good with the bad. They make a decision, they listen to the feedback, and they change it. That's, that seems to be the balance. That seems to be the right balance. And in this particular instance, I kind of wish, wish they'd stuck a little more to their guns because you've got to think about the long-term picture here. These distributions, like 2020, the LTS version, are going to be supported until, what, 2025? And then, and now they're doing 10 years, so it could be even longer. Yeah, right? So when they commit to shipping these 32-bit libraries in these LTS distributions, they're committing to paying staff to maintain those libraries, even if they import them from Debian once a cycle. Yeah, that's still, that's still a lot of money, time, and effort. For years. years. So like, they have to make, they have to cut at some point because there is a knock-on a effect for years. A long tail, yes. A very long tail here. Um, and somebody's got to do it eventually. That's what makes it so funny, too, right? It, like We had this discussion in such a rapid, I mean, quote-unquote discussion, in such a rapid-fire manner when this is, all, this is all stuff happening over months and years of timeline. So there's plenty of time to figure it out. The, the, the fervor really kind of started Saturday morning, London time, which is where Canonical's offices are. Saturday morning. And they had provided clarification by Monday morning, PST, Pacific time. 
That's a very, very small window of time to respond, to come to a consensus, and then issue a statement, which is funny because a lot of people are getting on them for not responding faster. <laughs> like, what do you expect? You need to go watch our video on burnout because <laughs> like, this is getting ridiculous. Anyways, um, they, so yeah, the end result is they're essentially they're backpedaling to a, to a degree, um, and they do leave a, a line um, in the second to last paragraph in their update. They write, there is a real risk to anybody who is running a body of software that gets little testing. Again, they're trying to tell you in a professional, non-fear-mongering way that they don't think, in their, their opinion, that these are safe libraries, that these are, this stuff is not getting enough attention, and they really recommend that we stop using it. And we're kind of forcing them to continue to ship it. That sucks. Yeah, it must be pretty frustrating. Like are we, you know, we we've been thinking about it. It's not like they rushed into this. You might say that they did, or that you know they could have done some things better, or communicated more, or whatever. It really wasn't rushed into. It's just silly. All right. I know by the time people are listening to this, it's probably been talked to death. So if you have thoughts in the mumble room, you want to chime in. Let's do it in the post show because I feel like I just I know people are probably sick of the topic, but. Um, that's that's where that stands of us right now, at least. Any other thoughts? Yeah, yeah. Maybe just go play some games on your sweet gaming Linux rig. <laughs> I'm gonna go play some 32-bit games while I still can. I actually, I thought it would be kind of a laugh to uh, start a change.org petition that demanded that Canonical goes all 64-bit, like do the opposite. Yeah, get, get that gross 32 off my system. Promote it here in the show and get like quadruple the amount of signatures. <laughs> But I thought, you know what? Canonical's probably just ready to move the F on. They don't need me trolling them. <laughs> I am too. Yeah, me too. All right, and with that, let's do a little housekeeping. Oh. We got hmm. some good stuff. Uh, we won't be doing the Friday stream. I mentioned that here because oh. a lot of times the crew here on this show is who's on the Friday stream. So it's like it's like a, it's like a sneaky second Linux Unplugged. But this week we're going to be in Texas, so no Friday stream this week. But Friday 8 just came out. Best thing about a Monday, Friday stream comes out. Random access memories. Wes is there, Drew's there, Cheese is there, I'm there, and we share the stories of our very first PCs. Yeah, yeah. It's it's a retro show. We it's get a all lot sentimental. Of, it's a lot of nostalgia, a lot of fun. Uh, we solve some problems for the world. Of course world, we do. Of course we and do. I won't spoil it, but there is a competition to give away a game in the show, and and one of the hosts here on the show wins. wins oh. and we won't say anymore. We won't say anymore. Fridaystream.com slash eight. It was a really, really fun episode. Go check that out. And then uh, catch up while we have an off week. Why not, right? Oh, yeah, that's a great time. We're doing it at 1 p.m. Pacific time. Check out meetup.com slash Jupiter Broadcasting, too. We have a security meetup coming. We just had our burnout, understanding burnout, I should say. That's actually the name. The understanding burnout meetup. And it was really good. Really good. Fantastic. I mean, Drew's got a heck of a file he's got to go through. But once we get a chance to, like, process it and all that, we'll get it up on the YouTube channel. (laughs) It's a lot, Drew. I'm sorry. It's a long one. But it's so good. It's really good. This is an instance where the mumble room showed up. We had uh, a uh, just a really great participation and just ah, so good. and Organic, helpful discussions. We'll have a link to that in a future Linux Unplugged. Or just keep an eye out at meetup.com slash Jupiter Broadcasting for that. Also, a little sneaky tip. This is a little birdie. Uh, this isn't an official feature, but um, I think you guys might like to know. Linux Academy is going to be soft rolling out transcripts on the platform over the next couple of days for the videos. Killer feature when you're trying to study. Now, it's just going to be initially in some videos. They're working out the tech. You know, they want it to be really solid. Of course. I've seen the demos, though. It's nice. The the implementation is solid. The tech is good. But they're going to, you know, they're going to be measured about how they roll it out. But a little sneaky little insider tip. I noticed that's rolling out soon. I know people have asked in the audience. Yeah, that's nice to have. It's really nice to have that. All right. Anything else we want to mention in the housekeeping? 
All right. I'm calling it then. I'm calling it then. So you probably heard in the last few episodes, if you've been listening, that uh, we did a hot swap, a live swap of our free NAS box to a Fedora box. At the time, we said don't do what we did, but actually it worked great. So maybe you should. Jeez, it's been good. And we'll keep, you know, if it goes wrong, we'll tell you. Of course. (laughs) Of course. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. It's been so good because um, we really took the philosophy of put all of the applications we're running on this thing in a container. Is NetData in a container, or is that actually installed on the host system? That's on the host. All right, so that might be the one app that is actually installed locally, but otherwise it's pretty much just a pure Fedora server install. Um, And then we have begun standing up back-end services that I am already so elated over. But the one that was sort of um, number one with a bullet on our list was replacing Dropbox. So it's not a you know as a business it's not the end of the world to pay a thousand dollars a year for storage but it's a big chunk of change. That is, I mean, it's sizable. You have to think about it. it. Shows up on the on the accounting. Yeah, well, and uh, you know, thousand dollars a year in hard drives would be a much better investment in my opinion. And they, this is so silly because now it's now I I, I disagree with past Chris. Past Chris is such an idiot, you know. You know, future Chris, you don't know about that guy, but present Chris is really, he's got to figure it out. Hope, I'm hopeful for future Chris. Yeah, he's going to come through for hope, us. Right, but present Chris, I really feel like he's got everything figured out. You know, he, he really knows what's going on. And he has, he had came to a realization that the reason why he was sticking with Dropbox was really because I just wanted something that was fundamentally really good file sync technology that I could generate a web URL so people that don't have an account or don't have the software installed could still get access to resources. It's a combo, right? It's this everywhere file system that follows you around and you can easily get stuff from it whenever you want. And sort of sneaking up on me, I didn't even realize what's happening, Wes, is uh, it turns out like a good mobile app matters. Yeah, it you know? does, yeah. When I started file sync, it didn't matter. But now here on the, you know, in the 2019s, I want a good mobile app. You do app. stuff on your phone and... The better it is, the more you can do. So when Dropbox announced their latest update where they would be packaging the Electron runtime and integrating with Google Docs and Google Sheets and trying to connect all of your different online systems together in one activity dashboard that you could share with your colleagues, I realized if the dropping of uh, everything but Extended 4 wasn't enough, this was it. It's not your Dropbox anymore. It's just not a product for me anymore. It's not. And I thought Nextcloud wasn't for me because I didn't want the overhead of a whole website and all of the collaborative stuff. I just wanted file sync. So I, I was convinced I would go with sync thing or Resilio sync. I tried them all out and I thought about it from a collaborative space and I realized how important some of the mobile app features were and the web interface was. And in the end, Nextcloud won out. So I came to you, Wes Payne. I said, Wes, bestow upon us a Nextcloud instance. That's how he talks all the time in real life, yeah. It's weird. And Wes, grant us with the performance that only a dedicated database can provide. These were the words that I, I conveyed to you. And you Spake. came back to me um, with a, a, like a multi-container setup on our on our fake NAS. So can you walk us through our setup a little bit, and then we'll get into everybody else's setup. Yeah, actually, um, Nextcloud provides some pretty handy Docker Compose Um YAML files ready to go up up in their repositories on GitHub. We'll have that linked, of course. Um, so you can get it set up. There's all kinds of ways. It's a blessing and a curse with Nextcloud. Um, there's also a, a really handy Linux server I.O. image we also have linked. And 
there's a snap. So there's all kinds of ways to get Nextcloud installed. But, well, um, to that end, uh, we'll hear we'll hear from each of those in a, mo- a moment. But you went with the official. Uh, yeah, I thought we might as well give it a try, right? See what see what that road was like, and. We ran into a few snafus because I wanted to use Postgres, which is my database of choice. And we ran into an issue with using some of the the automated setup to sort of populate all our stuff, set up an admin user right out of the box. Had to do a little tinkering. Were they expecting you to use a different database? Well, no, it just, it seems like that was, that bug was only affecting Postgres because you can Uh, also use MariaDB or SQLite. Or SQLite, right. But we wanted, we wanted good database performance as that's supposedly quite important for doing, you know, heavy file syncing of large media files. Once we got through that, through all the like configuration stuff, it's working great. So we have, um, we have Redis in there. We have a Postgres container, um, the actual web container that has all the app and has, you know, PHP FPM running, and then some proxies in front of it that are handling Let's Encrypt and all the rest. Yeah, and it works beautifully, and the performance seems to be actually pretty wonderful. While we're talking the container method, though, uh, Alex, do you know what would be, like, the advantage of going with the Linux server I.O. container over the project's main container? This is an aspect of Docker that bewilders me. So full disclosure, Linux Server IO is a website that I helped found several years ago. But um, the reason that I run the Linux Server image instead of the upstream Nextcloud image is the permissions mapping that the Linux Server images do. So the user that is running inside of a container will probably have a different UID and GID to that on the host. Um, so we allow through environment variables, which are specified at runtime, um, you can specify a specific user and group ID that matches that that's running inside the container. So it just makes permissions a lot more simple. Mm. All right. Very good. Yeah. And I'm, a lot of the other things, almost all of the other things we're running are Linux server IO. Oh, yeah, just, I don't know, 10 of them on there? Yeah. And that well, has I, really... I expect nothing less, Chris. <laughs> well, I, that way I, I know who to yell at if it doesn't work. <laughs> yeah, true that. <laughs> okay. So, Cheesy, you did the snap method, right? Yeah, um, I did the the snap method um, and super simple. Uh, snap install, uh, setting up your um, let's encrypt certs. I'd spoken uh, with Wimpy at uh, Linux Fest Northwest, and I told him how snaps were just kind of freaky to me because I'm used to being a little more hands on with my setup and going through and editing files and you know setting up the configuration and everything. So it's just weird that. Literally, just one command can pull it down and get it working. Um, so that's what I've done. But one thing that I did notice um, with that particular snap image is that it's based on Nextcloud 15. Um, I wanted to run 16. So, uh, and, and you can do that. It, it took a little bit of uh, Google Foo getting around and, and just reading some of the documentation there um, for the snap. But but doing a snap refresh, uh, snap refresh package name, um, tack tack channel equals 16 forward slash candidate, uh, then you can pull down the latest uh, 16 uh, and give it a go. You can even pull down edge versions or nightly builds. Yeah, and you can revert as well if it screws up. I've played a little bit with the snap as well. It's pretty nice. Yeah, it's, it's super painless. Uh, and then what I've done is um, I've gone through and uh, connected to uh, some block storage elsewhere so that all of my data basically resides in that storage um, so that, you know, if I need to nuke or redo something, you know, do something different with the snap or if I wanted it to swip, you know, swatch it, uh, flip it over to being uh, uh, Linux server.io uh, Docker container, I could do that. Right. The data uh, still And there. my data is still there. 
Yeah. We were just, we were, Chris and I, we, we were talking about the, how exciting it is, how good a time it is to be running some of these server-side apps on Linux because mm-hmm. it's easy, it's, it's easy to reason about, and it's safe because all of them have these nice mechanisms for protecting your data. Yeah, like, I mean, multiple times yesterday, we would just completely destroy a container and then stand it back up and just reattach it to the data, and it's like nothing changed. It's just incredible. Several years ago, I was pretty anti-Docker. I thought it was going to be a flash in the pan and a waste of time and just the next kind of noise in the industry, really. Um, And then I started using, this was when I was using Unraid, so it was probably five years ago now. Docker was like 0.3 or 0.4 or something, so it was a while ago. Um, And I blew away probably 15 apps worth of configuration um, by mistake. Um, however, it turned out that Unraid had mapped my volumes to a persistent storage somewhere. And I hadn't really realized what I'd done to set it up because I was a complete novice. Um, I reinstalled Unraid and came back and had all of my apps exactly as they were within five minutes. Mm. And I'll tell you what, that single thing alone was just like a light bulb going off in my head of just to say, yes, containers, but storing the state outside of the application runtime I am 100% on board with this. This is fantastic. So, Drew, I, we haven't asked you yet. Uh, so we, we've got a couple of container-based installs. We've got a Snap installed. Have you done a traditional install for your next cloud, or are you also a container guy now? Container all the way. Mine is set up very similar to the way Wes set up the studio instance in that I've got Docker running NextCloud, Redis, and PostgreSQL all behind a reverse proxy. So very, very similar. Wow, none of us have done a traditional package install or anything. I don't want to. I mean, it just, especially for like a, a PHP sort of app, like, like Nextcloud, unpleasant. I literally never would. After, after this experience, I just, I just never would. And I think my takeaway advice is if you're running an instance for a group of people, like a small office or a, a, like a, a couple or a family, the Snap version is really solid. I've experimented with it, used it myself. And if you're going for a larger team instance, like we're using here, then something with a traditional like Postgres database is a better setup. Using a container where you have a little bit of flexibility because it is a fast-moving project that needs updates. And then that's kind of the nice thing is we can, we can just track now. And if things go wrong, we'll just go back, <laughs> go back, go back. Just a heads up for, for other listeners, MySQL works just fine as well if you prefer that, that uh, for your database. There you go. Yeah, yeah. Um, so there's a lot you can do with Nextcloud besides file sync, but that's how I, I came at it. Um, I've always really been primarily interested in that. But I, I started now to look at it more as like a team collaboration piece of software. And when I when I changed my perspective to that, I think I started that's really for me when it started to click. I started to see it in a different total different light. And I've been watching how Drew and Cheese use Nextcloud quite a bit. You guys have really kind of integrated it quite a bit. Drew, I seem I I have a sense maybe you're one of the longer Nextcloud users on on the show. I'm not sure though. How, I, I get that sense though. Six months, maybe. Okay. Cheese, and how long have you been running Nextcloud now? Probably f- three or four months. Okay. Yeah. So we're all kind of new to. It. What about you, Alex? So I guess maybe Alex, you're probably the longest term. Uh, over a year. Um, before yeah. I emigrated, I I digitized every single document in my house, and I have to say, when I was trans uh, emigrating across the ocean, just being able to pull up a scan of this bill or that piece of ID at a moment's notice on my phone was so unbelievably useful. That sounds wonderful. Yeah. So when I started looking at it, and, and we've only and we're we're obviously the newest because we've only been running it for a week. 
<laughs> so it's still very new to us. Uh, but I, I've ran Nextcloud on and off for years now. And now that I'm looking at it, it's more of like a team collaboration tool. These apps are starting to make sense. Like one that I'm looking into right now is called uh, Workflow External Scripts. I'll put a link to this in the show notes. And this is uh, just allows you to pass files through this. And depending on the type of file and a set of defined rules, it will take different actions. So I was imagining we could have like a Nextcloud drop folder. Ooh, yes. Where this would be set up. And if it, you know, it would read the file name and then take actions based on and what type put of file it needs is. to go. Oh, mm-hmm. that's a great idea absolutely something we could use, right? So that I put in there. The other one that I, I installed, but it sounds like maybe isn't so great, is there's an audio player that I thought would be great for us because we have a lot of media content in there. And that's hit and miss. Doesn't seem to be working, does it, Cheese? Well, I tried out the the latest uh, version of that audio player plugin or app, as they call it. And on my particular instance, which is just a, a DigitalOcean droplet with, with one CPU and two gigs of RAM, um, there was this crazy like runaway PHP uh, FPM process that I can only associate with that player um, that I guess, I, you know, I don't know exactly what it was, but it, it pegged the CPU at 100%. So, I mean, I think that there are still, you know, maybe on the, the particular instance that you have set up, it might not be a big deal. You're the guy trashing the server now. Yeah. <laughs> no, Dang it, geez. No, that's always me. I'm always the guy that's like just totally soaking up the CPU. Yeah, well, you know, some of these apps are a little hit and miss, and you, you do have to kind of check how they went. You know, sometimes, yeah, you have you have side effects. The, there's something that NextCloud doesn't do by default that seems sort of necessary for what our use case is because we'll often be inviting people in is it doesn't have registration on by default. When you go to Nextcloud, you just kind of have to have an account, or someone has to have made one for you, and that's again, that's nice for like a small oh, yeah, team, private, right? Mm-hmm. So I turned on the registration app, and I said, you know, if your email is this domain, you can register. Essentially, is what I did, and that works. We've that's tested a great it. little feature for small teams, yeah. And you can say, make sure it goes into this group. You can turn on two factor as well. But here's, I want, I wanted to find something kind of cool that you could never have in uh, Dropbox. I turned this on for the whole team because I'm that Ooh. guy. It's called Keeper Sweep. Keep or sweep. It's tender for your files, essentially. Uh, you, it, you just when you get bored and you're in Nextcloud, you hit this little random button that's up in the toolbar, and it'll just bring up a random file in your in your drop in your Nextcloud. Almost said Dropbox. It'll bring up a random file in your Nextcloud, and it will ask you if you want to keep it or delete it. Oh, that's kind of handy. And you can sweep it or keep it. And um, I sat there and I went through and like it started going through some old pictures. And I, you know, I don't need that picture anymore. Sweep it. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of pictures, I'm, I'm looking forward to when we go to events, turning on the phone auto-upload feature in the app and just have it like, as I'm taking pictures at events, just put them all up on NextCloud automatically. Uh, but this one is a game changer. Now, this, is, I admit, is not applicable to all teams or even probably anyone else on our team. Um, but this one I'm very excited about. It's phone track. People might be familiar that I have a rover tracker in the RV. And he likes everyone to know where he is all the time. Well, no, I only, I really only turn it on when I'm on trips, typically. Um, every now and then I've, like, um, we went somewhere, we went somewhere in Oregon and I turned it on. And somebody noticed. That was kind of cool. Because uh, it is always up at uh, jupiterbroadcasting.com slash rover, at least the trackers. But I pay for that. And it uses a proprietary service, and it has a hardware device. that uh, You got like a dongle hanging around. Yeah. You? yeah. So PhoneTrack is an application for NextCloud that will generate links that you can plug into um, corresponding apps on a phone or hardware device. And it will supply location data Ooh. to this NextCloud application. And then it will generate a real-time map using OpenStreetMaps. And it looks really good. 
and you can get history. You can create an entire tracking session. Um, you can display location history if you want. You can uh, tra- check like distances and points. Um, you can display st- session statistics. And of course, you can also make it public if you want. It'll generate a public page that I could make available, which is kind of neat. So we wouldn't necessarily have to use the proprietary tracking service. We could use this. That is a great application. I tried it out. I loaded an app on the old iPhone and um, said allow background tracking. And uh, sure enough, it's it's accurate. (laughs) It's very accurate. (laughs) And I was able to then uh, share the link with the team. Um, It could be useful too, though, right? Like if you're trying to coordinate or maybe we're all going to the same meetup or event and keeping track of one another. I actually think it'd be a great way, like for a meetup, to like, you know, tweet out, here, just this is where we're at. Especially if we were at some sort of large event where you're moving around. Oh, right. Um, or if I'm on the road. That, like, that's where I actually, why the main reason I've used the rover tracker so far is because people watch where I'm going and they send me emails and they're like, hey, man, if you're in my town, stop by and say hi. Um, let's go get dinner or something, you know? And so that's really neat because people can kind of anticipate where I'm going to go next if they're looking at the map and stuff. Right. You don't have to. I'll be in this in two hours. Yeah, right. And now it's just now it's just on next cloud. Just on next cloud. I think, I think the thing that we have now is something like it's it's close to ninety bucks a month for the Ouch. service. It's meant for like fleets that have like trucks that they want to track and <laughs> right. stuff. It's not really you meant for the industrial grades. <laughs> it's not meant for a podcaster in his RV. Uh, <laughs> at cheesy, you threw in a news app. Oh, it looks like a like a feed reader app. Yeah, and that's exactly what it is. So I've previously uh, been using an instance of fresh RSS, basically just to have my own little RSS news reader uh, that I can log into and and pull down feeds from. I uh, just switched over a couple of days ago to using the news. Uh, app that's in in Nextcloud and it's super solid, really good. It's a lot quicker than Fresh RSS was as far as updating the feeds. Um, it'll give you kind of like a little notification if you're on that tab, letting you know that that you know it's been updated. Um, it's a really solid, solid newsreader. I'll tell you where they could improve it if they made it so it was a group RSS shared set of feeds, so we could have like a, a one feed dashboard that we could go into and it'd be that would be great like it, what, the way it is is now is each each user has their own uh, update uh, right right and then an, another thing i would recommend that uh, uh, an app that you install and maybe one of the first is the app order app mm-hmm. um which will allow you to reshuffle the icons along the top header um so you can place those wherever you want you can do that as like a, an admin from an admin level so you know you can choose what to show uh, all of the users, which icons to show them, which ones not to show them. You can reorder them, um, and or you can just set it up so that the user basically has the ability to reorder and and you know show and hide whichever icons that they want to see. Huh. So it's a really nice little uh, feature that I'd like to see built in. Another one is uh, right click. Um, at first, whenever I installed Nextcloud and I got it going, and I couldn't right click and get that context menu. It kind of drove me crazy, so I would highly recommend that you also install the the right the right click app. Right click is pretty much necessary in 2019. <laughs> so I have a couple of recommendations as well. One of them is a two factor authentication for login. Uh, so that supports like Google Authenticator and Authy and all that kind of stuff. Um, as I mentioned, I've got a lot of personal information in this one, so I wanted to make sure it was safe and secure. The other one is QO Notes. Uh, I don't know if you've used this desktop app. It's I think it's QT app. 
that allows you to take notes and it allows me to use Nextcloud to sync my notes like I used to use Evernote to do. I think it's text only, but I mean, that's good enough for most things. Supports Markdown. Yeah, and it supports Markdown and yeah, that's all I need. So QO Notes API is the name of the plugin for Nextcloud. Yeah, we should probably set that up. I love QO Notes. That's a good one. Drew, you got any uh, pro Nextcloud tips? Yes. So you can actually use it as a full PIM suite, PIM, personal information management. Uh, It does have a mail client and a calendar, and you can even get your contacts in there if you want to set it up so that you have all of your stuff. Is it good, though? It's okay. It's not great. It's not going to be challenging, you know, Gmail and Google Calendar anytime soon. But as far as a simple implementation of each of those things it's all right if you're so really if you're going the route of nextcloud because you want the enhanced privacy aspect of self-hosting it and not having somebody uh, controlling your stuff and say you also have your own mail server this is a good way to have a web-based interface to your various services like mail contacts, calendars that isn't being snooped on. So using it that way, you can get a little more, you know, off the grid as it were. I have one more pro tip, if I may, uh, and that that is something called rclone. Now rclone allows you to mount a directory using Fuse on your Linux system and then use Google Drive or any other kind of quote-unquote limitless backend. So if you wanted to host Nextcloud on a droplet, for example, it's only got 20, 30 gig of disk. Without paying for DigitalOcean Spaces or something, you could use your pre-existing Google Drive account, and it's all encrypted. Our clone handles the encryption, and it's completely transparent to Nextcloud using Fuse. So uh, that's another top tip. Nice. Well, my early, uh, my newbie tip then would be uh, take a look at the desktop client's selective sync options. And I'm very happy to report that I feel like they've given really good data on the sync process. In fact, much better data than Dropbox gives. Really? Yeah. yeah I'm really happy with the desktop sync information. And, you were, you were kind of, mm-hmm. you were, you were skeptical of mm-hmm, sync. Mm-hmm. Very happy and, for us, because we have archival information, we have large productions that some people just aren't even involved with. It's selective sync is such a killer feature. And I'm very happy to report that it seems to be working quite well. So my early tips are to play around in the settings of the Nextcloud client and take a look at that. I'm excited to switch to this already. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I've moved like three or four folders out of Dropbox already. That's like, that's like how far I've gone. And then I feel like after the company event, we're going to like just do the big switch. Another quick tip uh, related to that for any GNOME users out there, GNOME online accounts does support Nextcloud, so you can add it, and it shows up as a file system in your files app, Nautilus, on the left-hand side, where you can click into it and directly access your all of your folders, not even the ones that are just synced, and it just grabs everything over web dev. Yeah, so you don't even have to, if you just need a couple of files, you don't need to bother with sync. Which is probably a fair number of people on the team, yeah, really. Always like, on connection. Yeah. Oh, it's so great. Yeah, I really think that's pretty neat. Um, we've been experimenting with all kinds of uh, different ways to 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 make sure that uh, like I have a couple of automation. Th- I don't want to go into a lot of details, but I have a couple of automation things that kick off when certain things enter folders right now in Dropbox. And Wes and I yesterday were experimenting with replicating that in Nextcloud with the extra layer of challenge that you then have to like mount that path to where that is in, drop, in Nextcloud 
into the Docker container. Like there was like a little extra layer of work we had to do there to kind of figure that out. So there's some instances like that we're still sorting a couple of things out. But I think for us, the the other area we're going to use this out of, uh, and I don't even know how you do this yet, is there's that feature where you can request somebody sends you a file. And we're going to use that for production purposes. When we record, we can then send a guest a link, say, hey, please upload what you just recorded to us here. Give me those bytes. And otherwise, we were actually just, we were discussing building that. <laughs> I, will just, I guess we'll yeah, just we build just this ourselves for free, because that'd be great. And then we look at the next cloud and go, oh, yeah, just be, that's just a feature built in. It's pretty nice. Hey, Chris, um, yeah. I don't know if you remember, but for our Portland trip, I sent you a link like that, and you gave me all your photos. Yeah, all the photos. That's incredible. It was awesome. It was the first time I'd used it. It worked really well for us. I was going to ask you have, you, have you been finding success there? Do you sync a lot of photos? Like what's the like that kind of like like a lot of a lot of little files, big files. That what's kinda, the Brent breakdown? Yeah, what's the Brent experience? Yeah, so I've been recently moving towards Nextcloud um, for syncing photos to clients as like a method of delivery because um, almost everything I produce um, in my photography stuff is digital, um, as you might imagine. So uh, I've been testing that a little bit, and it's been working really, really well. Uh, for clients, I've gotten no bad feedback, and it has mostly the features I need, not all, but mostly. And it's worked great. I haven't had anybody um, complain about it. Um, I think after the last last week, Cheese and I were talking about um, raw support for giving previews of raw photos. Um, that's something he ran into as a problem, but I don't ever serve raw photos sort of to a public place. So it was fine for me. Um, but, uh, it's been super solid. I've been running it for a year now. Um, and also moved all of my contact and calendar syncing, uh, from the phone to the computer. Wow. Nice. You, you must be feeling good about it. Oh yeah. That, that I've been doing for a few months now. And I was, you know, testing it alongside, uh, the Google services just cause I think it, as you learned last time you tried Nextcloud, you should sort of test it for a while and sometimes you run into some strange bugs, but um, it's been really, really solid and I've been loving it uh, that all of my syncing of almost everything is in the same place. Uh, so one login and I get files, I get calendars, mm. I get contacts, I get you know notes, I get all, all that stuff. So I would encourage you to consider that as well. It's been really powerful and I've helped a bunch of people move to that and they've loved it. That does sound appealing, especially because Hadi and I right now are like trying to sort out, like what's the best way for us to share that kind of information? Oh yeah. Next cloud dude definitely is. Uh, Brent, there is a camera raw plugin that you can install, uh, which I have used successfully for a while. Yeah, it requires an iMagic plugin that has been deemed. Some people said it wasn't so secure. So uh, I would love to get your take on that uh, at some point. But uh, for that reason, I considered not going for it. I didn't know that. I just installed it. Honey Badger. I didn't care. <laughs> <laughs> Ironic, Honey what's, Badger. What's your uh, next cloud address again? <laughs> yeah, let's give that out on the air. <laughs> yeah, let's do that. Can we talk about business applications for just a moment? Please do, sir. So there are a couple other cool things that you can do with it. Um, there is uh, the ability to white label where you can put in your own logos, your own color themes, and all of that. Uh, JB Cloud. That's right. And yeah, I want to do that. I definitely want us to do that. There are some other neat features in the App Store, like a DICOM viewer for people working in HIPAA, uh, HIPAA sites, um, that actually works. I don't know if you guys have ever had to deal with DICOM files, but essentially they're files that are 
typically somewhat encrypted and you end up shipping them on a CD from one hospital to another. And then they've got this included viewer that only runs on Windows and some of them only run on Windows XP. Like for x-ray images and whatnot? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think I have. Yeah, I have. It's been a long time. So, you know, for HIPAA, where you are trying to self-host all the things as much as possible, NextCloud is a really good option. Okay, so now, Brent, you you brought it up, Federation. I got to ask uh, how Federation is going to fit into uh, our future setup, because I envision, and I want to get your feedback on this, all of you, I envision our on-premises NextCloud box being like a source of authority for all of the data, like terabytes of data on this thing. But then it seems like the more frequent access data, the less historical stuff, should be available up on a droplet or something that's fast and available for everyone. And I'm wondering if that's where Federation plays into this or or, or how Federation plays into this. And if if maybe down the road I could have a setup where some data is on some NextCloud servers and the uh, the rest of it's on another, like how that could work or, f- you know, do you get where I'm going? Like is there some sort of future where I could have some sort of glorious on-premises cloud hybrid next cloud setup? I think the future is here, Chris. Is it? Are you? Have you played with Federation? So I have uh, two servers because I basically wanted to play with Federation, but for a few other reasons. So I have two servers that I am running with a few different users on each individual server. Um, and so that way I can have a certain URL when I share files to clients, for instance. Um, and then another sort of internal URL, if you will, that, that contains almost all of my sort of internal files. And I have, so you can see it another way, which is I have one for business and one for personal. Oh, that's a good idea. Mm-hmm. It's been really nice because I can um, have certain content in one place and uh, I can share it to myself. Uh, from one server to the other, and it, I, I've been really impressed with the Federation. It it isn't um, instant when you do a share, but it's pretty darn close. And so, uh, I would say if you're if you've got that sort of decentralized uh, notion in your mind of where you want to go, I'd say go ahead and try it. Um, it's it's been super solid and really easy to share files. They have sort of a nomenclature that's easy to understand for sharing files between different servers um, from user to user, and um, I say go full steam ahead. Couldn't be easier to test that kind of thing in Docker, though. You just spin up another container and test it out. That's true, and we have a we have a we have a system up on DigitalOcean that we kind of use for those very kinds of purposes. So we could definitely try it. And I, you know, I think I could I could also see myself setting up a personal next cloud. Yeah, next cloud I was on, thinking the same. Probably on DO. Like I don't need as nearly as much storage as if I separated my personal stuff from all the JB stuff, I probably need like a couple of gigs at most because it's mostly documents and backgrounds that I it's like. It's all the boring stuff, yeah. <laughs> don't forget that high-res photo sync though. That does yeah. eat up a lot of space. It does, yeah. Mm. But I'm going to be sending those to the JB one because I'll, I'll bet my intention there is to just turn that on while I'm at events and then turn it off after. Um, because otherwise, I've got built-in platform solutions for syncing the photos and backing them up. But I, I guess I, uh, I feel like one of the things that has made me feel like this is the time to go with Nextcloud, besides just the project getting more mature and Nextcloud getting, or I mean Dropbox getting crappier, um, is the setup that we now have, where we have at multiple layers what I feel like are solid exchange haps, uh, hatches. Um, if the container goes bonkers, we can go back or we can switch to a different container. It's isolated from the config and the data. The data is not the application. 
the two things are not at all intertwined and they're completely safe to separate and move independently. And then the operating system also, as we have now proven, can be swapped out to anything that supports ZFS. Right. I mean, we have gone from a free NAS install that was maybe one release behind or current and went to Fedora and were able to just successfully mount those ZFS yeah, pools. And... um did we end up doing these command to bring it up to date? Uh, we have we've not upgraded the pool to yeah. the latest so, stuff. Yeah, wait, we did look though. There is an option to essentially upgrade the pool to the most current, but then there's no going back to FreeNAS if we do that. Does Alan know that you've dropped BSD? I haven't really said anything. No, <laughs> I'm pretty confident that at this point, if for some reason we were like, "Oh, screw Fedora," it's so horrible. After for some reason, even though we've been running it on other systems on DO now for a while. Um, I'm pretty confident we could put Ubuntu LTS on there, spin those containers up, and mount that ZFS pool, and we'd be back in business in an hour. And so at each, like, all these different levels, we're abstracted and we're safe. Like, there's, like, Nextcloud can screw up. We're good. The ZFS pool can have problems. It doesn't mess like the And at the same time, the it's not making it like it's some horrible thing. In, in fact, it's easier to manage, if anything. It is. It's way easier. It's great. Like, I'm giddy with how, like, how simple it is, really. Once you've gotten... The most basic Docker understanding, you know, you look at your compose files are easy to read, and the Docker command is command line is very simple. Um, or you can use even on top of that, you can use cockpit. And it has a front end, a graphical front end. And if you don't need to do anything fancy, it's fine. I'm so pleased you guys are doing this. It's uh it's been the way I've been running my servers now for two, three years or whatever, just hundred percent Docker uh containers for everything I can get my hands on. And it, it just makes life so, so easy. It's great. I guess I feel like, I don't know, a lot of times when you do something like, cause you got to compromise, you know, like you got to give something mm. up when you go with the free solution that's self-hosted. But this time it's like, I'm gaining a bunch of stuff and I'm going to be saving money. And I also got privacy that like I didn't have before. Like, so I've gained like on every front. Like, I think the application is better. The suite of tools is better. The platform it's on is better. And it's private. And oh, by the way, it's under my own roof. And it's kind of fun. Yeah. And it's really fun too. That's too. Because it's not a huge hassle. Hell yeah. That too. It's, I just, oh, it's one of the, this is just, I love open source. I love free software because, <laughs> like, this is, this is like, it, this is it, when it's at its best. It really is. Ah, so good. So I really encourage you to go out there and check it out. However, you want to install it. It's worth the time to just play around with it a little bit and see if maybe it would work for you because I was resistant, legitimately. And I'm, I'm just really happy we gave it a go. And maybe some of our fine audience have some tips we should be hearing about how they have their next cloud instances set up. How do they tell us, Wes? Oh, linuxunplugged.com slash contact. Absolutely. Hey, uh, by the way, next week we're going to have a special on PCI pass-through for virtualization and our general VM setups, how we do them, and maybe some of Wes's tricks for running operating systems, we decided to just make one authoritative episode that we can refer people to. So it's going to be our comprehensive uh, setup on how we do virtualization. I have been all in on PCI pass-through and eGPUs, and um, so has uh, Drew and... uh, I just, I feel like we need one definitive spot. And so while we are traveling, we thought, let's go ahead and release a special. So that's, we're going to do a PCI pass-through special next week. So make sure you grab it. Should be that. really good. All right, Mr. Payne. Well, 
I'm so excited I could talk about NextCloud for another hour, but we should probably get to these picks because they're crazy good. And one of them is rather relevant to us that you found. And I I love I love the way they talk about this project. So it's called Lexicon. And here's how it describes itself. Manipulate DNS records on various DNS providers in a standardized way. I just, uh, what does that mean, Wes? <laughs> well, okay, I think Lexicon is actually a great name, right? Because we're dealing with names. We have all these different terms. DNS helps you look things up. Unfortunately, different providers do things in different ways. Some have very nice APIs. Some have complicated APIs. Some have unofficial, undocumented APIs. Yeah. All of that's been combined in Lexicon, which is a handy Python library that has a great little command line. So it was built um, with Let's Encrypt in mind, primarily, as well as being a, a general utility. So you can do stuff like do their DNS challenge, where you have to go add a specific thing to your DNS update. With Lexicon, you can do that programmatically. Yeah, and it supports a ton of providers. Um, everybody Route 53, from, Cloudflare. Oh, yeah. Hover. Hover, uh, Digital Ocean, um, Easy Gandhi. DNS. Uh, GoDaddy, obviously, Google Cloud DNS. Uh, I mean, uh, Linode, like, just essentially all of them. <laughs> I'm looking, yeah, Namecheap's on there. All of the ones I've ever used are on there, um, including ones I haven't. So it's so regardless of, in theory, as long as it's on this list, regardless of who your DNS provider is, it's the same set of command syntax to update DNS records, modify DNS records. Yeah, there's like a few little variances here and there as they're acquired by the the platforms. Uh, okay, and sure. a few, it's, it's one um, pip package in Python, but a few of them have a few extra packages because they have extra dependencies maybe. So look into the details for your specific provider. But in our case, we were doing some stuff with Hover, really easy. You just had to go, you know, you could get your credentials, pass that in. They have a couple different options for how you do it. And then you can make queries and stuff. So uh, I used it. We needed a uh, dynamic DNS updater for now that we're using a whole bunch of stuff at the server. Obviously, you know, here in the studio, we want to know where it is when we're on the road. Um, that made it really easy. I just wrote a little bash script. You could go and query hover through Lexicon to find out what the current IP address is. And you can easily delete it or change it. And does that just become like a script that gets croned? Or? Uh, yeah, I stuck it in a Docker container on, <laughs> on the server here. And then yeah. it's just uh, running in all the time. <laughs> of course it is. <laughs> all right, well, how about something you're not going to run in a Docker container this week? Uh, it's called ARANDERR, or ARANDER. Um, I realized that I never really followed up on how I solved this super obnoxious problem I had where I had two vertical screens on the side and a horizontal screen in the middle. So I have three ASUS 27-inch monitors, two of which are vertical, one of which is standard 16 or whatever it is, you know, you know, you get what I'm saying. And uh, I have this really obnoxious problem that has plagued me uh, across all the different desktop environments. And I eventually just decided I, I had to come up with a solution. I thought the desktop environments would solve it. I thought maybe switching to an AMD GPU from an NVIDIA GPU might solve it. You a know, dramatic I, switch, by the way. It did not solve it. In fact, now it just manifests in different, weirder ways. <laughs> uh, so I had to make a script. And uh, Arandr, or Arandr, or whatever you... Arandr. Yeah, you know, it's essentially a front-end to Xrandr, which is a way to script the layout of your screen, windows, etc. And the nice thing about this is it just looks like a regular display manager window where you arrange your monitors like you would in a multi-monitor setup, and then you hit save, and it generates the script for you. I put that into a desktop launcher. That's in my menu bar. As soon as I wake up my screens, if they're screwed up, I click that within a second. 
everything's laid out perfectly. You know, it's funny. I discovered this a few years ago when I was still running Unity. And then I had three screens on an NVIDIA GPU over, like they were DisplayPort daisy-chained. And it was just the worst. I had mm-hmm. to do fighting with the built-in desktop environment display manager. It just wasn't as good. Plus, as you say, like you can easily add it to startup scripts or, you know, just restore scripts. Yeah, didn't you just use it recently here in the studio? Oh, yeah, it's on the Reaper machine now because uh, I wasn't happy with how XFCE was doing it. Yeah, we have a, like a we have like a stand up the, the Jack system, patch everything in because we have so many, so many things. And so Wes created a, a script to standardize it. And part of that is you just run this so that way every time the monitors, or you, you just know they're always laid out correctly. Exactly. Yeah, it's so nice because you can run this once. And then it solves the problem for you forever. <laughs> and I don't know if you've ever experienced some of the ones, I, th- I think in the GNOME heritage in particular, where the screens just don't move where you tell them. Mm. <sighs> mm-hmm. Yes. It, it doesn't happen, right? It's just, it's the perfect amount of simplicity. It's not flashy. Yeah. It gets the job done. I will have a link in the show notes. I encourage all of you, at least as long as we're still running X, that was one of the stories that did not make it in, but I want to talk about soon, is we now kind of have a end of day's oh. date for X. Maybe we'll try to cover that next episode because that's kind of a big deal too. And uh, maybe we should spend some time switch totally over to Wayland, see how you know. Yeah, evaluate. We really should, especially since we've got the ThinkPads with the full Intel setup. Yes, we really could. I have done it a little bit. The issue is, is once I switch back to XFCE, I've I basically kissed that goodbye. Yep. But you know, it's not bad to check in on GNOME or. That's or what I'm. Yeah, even I, I think I need to. Yeah, and we could do that. We could definitely do that. Well, I want to say thank you, everyone, for listening. We really appreciate you listening to these shows, sharing them with your friends, sending in feedback, or even if you've just been a long-time silent listener who's never said anything, we're thinking about you, and we, do, we appreciate we you. We for you. That's the whole reason, right? Yeah. We very much appreciate your time and choosing to listen to us, so thank you very much. We will not be live next week because I'll be traveling back. I'll be doing a, a road trip back from Texas, so we'll have the pre-recorded PCI pass-through episode. But we'll be back after that, the next Tuesday, the following Tuesday. We do it at 2 p.m. Pacific time, but you can go to jupiterbroadcasting.com slash calendar. I'm at Chris Elias. The network's at Jupiter Signal. Thanks for being here. See you next Tuesday. jbtitles.com let's go boat I'll tell you where else I use a rander and that's when I'm switching between two virtual machines that with PCI pass through I can oh. use that script on a hotkey to rearrange my monitors to have just one as Windows 10 or just one as Linux or ah. that's a nice way to do it yeah really hotkey is nice. a good way to go too I should hotkey it I don't know why I don't I, I, I should I really should just hotkey that control left 10 is now Windows 10 so I mean it just makes sense that way, when you try at Wayland again, you'll have to figure out how to how to make that work. <laughs> I like I like, you're really on this. Yeah, <laughs> it's the future, Chris. I use XClip and Aranda. I'm I'm heavily all in on X. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. When I was reading this post about sort of like the plans for wrapping up Xorg, I was thinking to myself, oh, I don't know if I'm ready. I don't know if I'm ready. But you know, like you're going to be talk- installing the weird 32 bit 
XORG snap, and that'll be your system. Uh, I'll have uh, I'll have X Wayland thirty two bit. No, but like seriously though, you joke. But like we were talking about with the thirty two bit stuff, at some point you you do have to make a transition. And like it or not, we're running an engineer's workstation operating system here. Now, we're not really running <laughs> Mac OS for end users, right? And so like sometimes the stuff's a little bit of a pill to swallow, but that's sort of the Sort of the agreement, I think, when you run desktop Linux, like it or not. <laughs> Maybe I'm wrong, but it sure seems to be the case. See, the upside, if we do some some playing around there, is that's a good excuse to play with Pipewire again, too. Yes, yes, yes. I like the way you're thinking, Wes Payne. We're going to have to make that happen. Are you? What are you thinking? Are you thinking like a Fedora? Yeah, I th- that's what I was thinking, mm-hmm. yeah. How'd mm-hmm. you know? Oh, I know. 